Let us all turn this evening to the Word of God. That'll be the book of Jonah, of course. And every night that remains to us this week, it'll be exactly that, the book of Jonah. So we're doing Bible readings. It's saying this morning that, uh, well, there's nothing wrong in preaching a sermon, of course. But I did point out that I hadn't come with the intention of preaching a sermon as such. Maybe the next time I'll come, if there is it next time, I'll preach a sermon. But the intention was to give the Lord's people an opportunity to sit down with the book of God, just get the Bible lying open in front of us, with a heart at prayer, calling upon the Lord and saying, Lord, take us through this chapter. That's personally how I read the Bible. I might as well say that it might be helpful to someone that was how i would read the bible i'm saying <coughs> lord take me through this chapter or if it's a verse in the chapter then i'm saying the same thing lord take me through this verse because we must confess the utter inadequacy of our own thinking that we might have the mind of God made known. God has given us a precious book in the Bible. And we said enough this morning to indicate where we stand in that matter. We believe the Bible to be the very word of God. We sometimes say it's a God-breathed word. And so it is. So this time around in this series, we have the book of Jonah. And I'm going to be talking about it in a moment or two, as you'd expect. Should we read the first chapter tonight? We were really dealing with the introduction this morning. Giving a lot of attention to verse 1, although even then uh, we were still skating over the surface. And there was much more uh, to be gleaned than was said this morning. That maybe goes without saying. But it's important to do the skating anyway, to start there and say the simple things. I trust they were simple. Tried to make them as clear and as plain as I could. I trust they were simple, that the Lord blessed the word to your heart. Sorry if we went on a bit longer this morning. Uh, but then it was a study of God's word. It might have kept you a bit longer. You know, that will have a good thing because... A good application to it, because later on you'll be saying, thank the Lord for our own minister. He doesn't keep us so long on a Sunday morning. So it's nice to get something good out of uh, whatever happens. And that's true. But we're reading that chapter again tonight. And as we said this morning, try and read ahead. So tomorrow night it'll be Jonah chapter 2, God willing. And the meetings are in the Lord's hands. And I intend that the preacher should be in God's hands too. But as at this point we know the will of God, we will be contemplating chapter 2 tomorrow night. Very important chapter. Clearly it is. Verse 1, chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish 
from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. If you had put yourself in Jonah's shoes and just think of this chapter tonight, Jonah's still alive. He's in the glory. He's in heaven with the Lord. And the Lord let him come down from heaven, although unseen by you and me, and sat down in one of the chairs there. Would he get embarrassed? Imagine me doing the like of that. And Lord, you went and put it in the Bible as well. You might have slipped up in one thing and another over the years of a lifetime, but you wouldn't want somebody to write an article about it and put it in the revival. It used to be the revivalist. <laughs> I'm living out of date. But uh, it's just the same. Put it in the church paper. You would say, well, there isn't really a case for you to do that. After all, that's between me and the Lord. Everybody slips up. I slipped up. Uh, poor Jonah. He has it here in the Bible. We are reading about it. You're learning about him. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it. For its time it was a big vessel, ocean going, this ship itself. There were smaller vessels that plied their way between the ports and the coastline of Israel, uh, going up and down in the interests of marketing. Uh, these were not vessels calculated to uh, take on the, the voyage across the high seas, but the ship referred to here was uh, the word, for example, in the Hebrew that's used for it. And then, more obviously, in verse 3, uh, this is what I want you to see, more obviously in verse 3, it's a ship able to go to Tarshish. That's as far away as you can get. And if it's a ship able to go to Tarshish, it's fitted for the high seas. He paid the fare off. He got his tickets. Went down into the depths of the vessel. So it had various tiers, you see. Maybe just the two stories. Maybe it had three stories. We don't know. But it just wasn't a single deck vessel. He was able to go down where there were quarters provided for the passengers and he had his cabin there. He went down into it to go with them on the Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea. The Lord's in charge of the weather. And there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, because they were idolaters. They weren't believers. They weren't men from Israel. As far as the formation of this crew is concerned, no, they're heathen people. Everyone has his little idol, and he's crying out to his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it off them. 
But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. And he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him. Said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots. <coughs> and would you believe it? The lot fell upon Jonah. There he is. Identified. Picked out. He was the one man on board who didn't want to be seen. Taking this trip, that would be one of the reasons he went down quickly into the lower area of the vessel. He wouldn't be bumping into somebody he knew. He couldn't be recognized. He went away down there at the lot fell upon Jonah. That brought him right into the picture. He might have been standing at the back before this, as it were, hiding best he could in the crowd, under on yon perimeter of the little crowd that would have been on the vessel. Standing way at the back. Now where is he? Bring him right to the forefront. The lot fell upon John. Then said they unto him, everybody at once, a whole crowd of them, there's panic aboard the vessel. So everybody's shouting at the one time, poor John in the middle, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? Better find out every detail about you. What is thine occupation? Whence comest thou? What is thy country? And what people art thou? You can see again, this is a seagoing vessel. It's not one of those small ships that uh, ply their way from uh, Joppa up the coast uh, to the ports further north. In modern times you'd think of Haifa under the shadow of Mount Carmel, but while the bay was still there back in Jonah's time, Haifa is a modern name, obviously. But that would be the kind of thing. Jonah's still there to this day, and, and the harbour. Never get there, but I look at the harbour. If I see a little boat, even a yacht, I think, well, Jonah's vessel was somewhat different to that. But this is the place. And, and you can see again, that all sorts of people are travelling in this vessel. Could be Egyptians there. Could be Syrians on board. All sorts of people. They're strangers one to another. Who are you anyway? Why has the lot fallen on you? What have you done? You better make it clear. So you've got the list there. Your occupation. Where you've come from. What your country is. And what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew. He's among a different crowd here. He's not among his own people. I fear the Lord, he says. Even Jehovah. So the word Lord, usually when printed in capitals, or the word God, for that matter, printed in capitals, in your authorized version. 
will be an indication that behind that word Lord or God printed in capitals, there will usually lie the name Jehovah. In one or two cases, or more than one or two, there is another name, even Yah, which represents the Lord, the covenant-keeping God. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why? Why hast thou done this? But the men knew that he, had, that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. <coughs> and he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the man rowed hard, got the oars into play. Now they rode for all they were worth, every man aboard that had any muscle at all, every ounce of energy to try to beat the wind and the storm to bring that ship to land. But they could not. Again, we come back in the words of explanation. We have had them already. For the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, Now they're praying to the Lord, the God of the Bible. They're praying to the Lord. A little while before, every man was praying to his God, but things have changed here. Do you see the difference? They were crying out every man, that's verse 5, just for handiness. And he had his image out, his little God, whatever was necessary to go through with the procedure. They were heathen. They were pagan people. But now a visitation from God Almighty has settled on them. And they're crying to the Lord. <coughs> See the word Lord in capital. We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee. You can see the earnestness, the readiness to keep begging the Lord. We beseech thee, we beseech thee. That's what people do when they're at calamity point. Let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not upon us innocent blood. They know, the pagans as they are, they know the difference. Right and wrong. And even unlawful killing. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. He's the omnipotent God. And now they recognize God's in control. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. Even passing tonight in Northern Ireland, there are lots of people who don't know a thing about the Lord. Their houses, 
maybe even in Carryduff, but certainly in Belfast, where they don't know the least thing about the Lord. They're not only strangers to grace, they haven't a clue about the Bible. Sad to say. And yet, even in such a situation where you find people like that, things can turn around so quickly that they actually can start calling upon God, the God of heaven, just like that. Now, verse 15, so they took up Jonah, no, no alternative, cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then that man feared the Lord. Again, they've forgotten about their own images. Cast them off. It's the Lord. They feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. Perhaps a little later in the series I'll come to this verse. Although tomorrow night, as I've said, I plan to move on to chapter 2. There's so much here to weigh up and think over as we continue in the Lord's presence. They feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice not to their own gods, but to the Lord. That's a miracle. Amen. And they made vows. There we have this little postscript. Now, the Lord had prepared a great fish. The Lord's never put about by a change in circumstances. He never disturbed as to what he might do next. He's never nonplussed. The Lord had already prepared for this. He had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. <coughs> we need help from God, men and women. Special, special help from God. Even now, as we consider his precious word. Let's bow in prayer. We'll keep the Bible open. I would like you to do that. And you'll have a marker, I take it. You'll have a marker already in place. Because if you come back, and I hope... Sincerely, hope you will, like you to come every night if you can. It's all over on Wednesday night, so it's not as if it's lasting three weeks or six weeks or anything like that. But let's make an effort this time. Who knows why we're going to try and teach the book? Who knows how the Lord will work apart from that and use this word to burn that truth into our heart and bless us before his face. Lord, we do need thee. We thank thee for those who are able to come tonight and gather around the Saviour's feet, just as it was in days of old. Except, Lord, we don't have the, the physical view now, but we have thy presence just as truly. Gather us around thy feet. Open our hearts, Lord, before thee. We thank thee for what we have read, for the change to take place on this vessel. Although the men who left the seaport at Joppa never dreamt what lay ahead of them out there on the high seas. Oh God, come by tonight. 
There are no surprises that will take thee unprepared. And we ask thee tonight, Lord, to go ahead of us, just as we have seen here tonight, Amen. right down to the preparation of the fish. Oh. Everything in hand, everything in readiness. Lord, we could smile at it tonight, right. although nobody smiled at it at the time. But we come before thee. Our hearts, Lord, are ready. We ourselves, Lord, have sought thee. We need a word from above. We thank thee for the goodly progress made in the congregation for this beautiful building that already is taking shape, oh. edging its way toward the, the point in mind all the time and progress mm. when the doors opened oh. and the place is used for the preaching of thy name. We thank thee, Lord, for this great token, Amen. for this immense encouragement. Yes. And we ask that we might all be helped to go forward with God. Yes. Bless us now. For we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Jonah is one of the best known books in the Bible. That doesn't make it any easier for a preacher to come and start preaching on it. But certainly among the twelve minor prophets, the book of Jonah just stands out on its own. And when you think about it, the story of Jonah has gone all across the country been taught in the Sunday school class, probably here, I, I dare say, I'm 99.5% sure that it's been taught here, kind of. And way to the west of a province it's been taught there. And in children's meetings, story of Jonah has gone forth. So it's not as if we're in the dark about it, or boys and girls for that matter either. Yet, as we think of this book, it's, it's different. It's different from the rest of the minor prophets. As I've said, there are 12 minor prophets. And I explained earlier today, they're called minor prophets because they're smaller in size than the larger prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Where you go chapter after chapter and there's ever so much in those pages. But these books here, these 12 books are called the minor prophets. They're not minor as to their message. They're not minor in what they teach. But they're minor in size. They're not as big. Yet the book of Jonah, although in this collection of 12 minor prophets, the book of Jonah is different. It's different for one thing, in that the message that is to be sent forth, and the pages here record the detail, the message in the book of Jonah is for the Gentiles who live in Nineveh. In every other case, it's a familiar thing, no matter where you go in the Bible, the message is to Israel, and to Jerusalem even. Well, here... The book of Jonah is different because the messenger, Jonah by name, is to take the word of the Lord to far off Nineveh and bring the word that God has given him. There is a hint here, a foreshadowing if you like, of how God, although it is in his plan to circulate his word throughout the realm of Israel, in terms of the same time 
to carry that message to the Gentiles. And so we here tonight, a Gentile people with a Gentile preacher, are handling the book of God and setting forth the message of Christ. God working among the Gentiles. And for a little season, that's the way of things. Until the times of the Gentiles are brought to their conclusion. And blindness in part has happened unto Israel. Until that day comes. Until the fullness of the Gentiles is to be gathered in. And then after that the Lord will take up working with his people in Israel again. But that's one of the things here making the book of Jonah different from the rest of the books making up this collection. And there's another point, and it's very significant as well, that makes the book of Jonah different. And that is, this book, in distinction uh, from the rest of the books in the collection, focuses on the man more than the message. And the opposite is the case. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and so on till you come to finally Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, making up the twelve. Always, although there may be details of God's servant, the prophet, locked away in the chapters, yet principally in the rest of these books the focus is on the message. But in Jonah, maximum attention is given to the man. And of course you know the reason why. I explained this morning from chapter 1, verse 1. Here we have uh, the key words, or some of the key words, uh, that belong to the book of Jonah. I described them as the old prophetic formula, explaining that these words are found throughout Scripture, going away back to the days of Abraham. The word of the Lord came unto his servants. I did explain earlier, and it was right for me to do so. That is the unmistakable pledge that God has given to the reader. That this book of Jonah has come from God. That's the pledge of its divine origin. Every word of it. So, if you like, here's the stamp of inspiration on the book of Jonah. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah. And it's important to recognize also, as we said this morning... That our Lord Jesus Christ makes reference to Jonah and to the book of Jonah three times over in the Gospels. And those three quotations, we went as far as to say, those three quotations from the Gospel are tied into three great events that are bound together in a holy and unbreakable union. What am I talking about? The three events 
the giving of the book of Jonah, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the calling of the nations of men to the judgment at the last day, the great judgment day, in other words. These three signal events are all brought together as one, one linked into the other. The bodily resurrection linked into the book of Jonah. And the assembly of the nations in that last great day, the day of judgment, linked in to the book of Jonah. Now that word came, it's, it's part of the verb to be. And while I didn't say that this morning, yet I commented in such a way as to show you that was the case. Because one of the things I said this morning was this. That word came. That the word of the Lord came to Jonah means that the word had an existence on its own outside of the prophet. I explained then the prophet just didn't uh, put some of his thoughts together and feel a burden in his heart. And so he would write down some things in his prophecy and say the Lord has called me to minister his word in this fashion. No, no. Don't make a mistake about that. The prophets in the Old Testament or the apostles in the New Testament, they did not, in reference to the writing of Scripture, they did not compose the word ahead of time themselves. But they bring the word that God has given. So we can refer, see this book here? We can refer to the Bible as the God-breathed word. Amen. It's different from all other books. And God has given us the words of the Bible. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah because it already existed apart from him. It was God's word that came to Jonah. It wasn't a case of Jonah devising the word himself. And so that word uh, comes from the verb to be. Now we probably get lost here, but you shouldn't because... <coughs> The verb to be, if it sounds like grammar, a lot of people just want to switch off right away. And I know how you feel. But don't, don't hesitate. It, it's not a, going to be a point of difficulty. I am, he is, you are. These are all examples of the verb to be. Now, you might not know it. But Genesis chapter 1, let's just go over to Genesis I do want to be quick about this because I want to keep it as brief as I can. But in, in Genesis chapter 1, this verb is used oh, time after time. If we were to go a little way with it, say even take the first eight verses, the verb to be, although you've never realized it, <coughs> occurs ten times. And it occurs more times after verse 8. But just to show you the word was in verse 2. And the earth was. It was brought into existence. That's the verb to be. Used here in Genesis 1. This chapter just stands out in the Bible for a verb I'm talking about. Something coming into existence. And why not? Because Genesis 1 is about the creation of the heavens and the earth. 
It's all about the heavens coming into existence. It's all about the world coming into existence. So why not? It would be very strange otherwise. The earth was because God created it. And you see there in verse 3, let there be light. And that word is emphatic. That light would come into existence. It wasn't there ahead of that time. It was there when God created the light. And it says in the last line of verse 3, there was light. That's the same word that's used, the verb to be. There are different forms of it, different expressions of it, but we've got this coming out. And now, if you look at uh, the end of verse 7, you see those words, and it was, so, was. That's the word we're looking for. Where God says, let there be light, and it was so. When God separates between the light and the darkness and creates the dry land, and it was so. That is to say, exactly as the Bible says it was. You see, the great divine covenant name Jehovah comes from this same verb. He who was, he who is. He who forever shall be. We should take note of that men and woman, because uh, when we pronounce the name Jehovah, it, it's likely, at least for many Christians, that they don't quite grasp that that word does have a meaning and it has an origin. It comes from this same verb, to be, to exist. And so we say of our God, He is the ever-living one. He's the God who is. You see Revelation 1 verse 4? You have it just put to you in a way that you'll understand. And that's why I'm uh, encouraged to do this. And to say, just come with me to Revelation <coughs> chapter 1. And you think of the name Jehovah. Now there are many... Uh, aspects to the Lord revealing himself as Jehovah to his covenant people. But this is an important aspect to the name. Verse 4 of chapter 1, and we're looking at the latter part or the middle part of the verse. From him, you can mark it. I've just gone over the words. From him which is. And which was and is to come. So the divine name of the eternal God, the ever-living one, is expressed to you, is described to you, sitting here in this meeting tonight, in this threefold way. What is it? He who is, that's put first because he is the living God. Which was way back there in the era of creation, which was and reaching out into the future, which is to come. You see, the divine name comes out of this. And you had those words repeated in Genesis 1, and it was so, because what God says comes to pass. When we look at God's word, 
We're not to be dubious about it because we can say, look, God says it, and it is so. So. And that's the word that comes here to Jonah. The word that is. The word that exists. The word that belongs to God. That is the eternal word. Heaven and earth shall pass away. But my word shall never pass away. It's the everlasting word. Coming to Jonah. The word of the Lord came unto him. We're just showing you these things. To show you the certainty. Of the book of Jonah. Because there are lots of people who would say. And some of them are, are, are in churches who would say, no, no, we, we don't take the book of Jonah literally. Ah, oh, no, you see, we don't, we don't go that far. <coughs> it's just a parable. Now, there are lessons, certainly, you and I can learn. But when it comes to history, the book of Jonah is true history. It Amen. was so. It was so. But the inspired history of the Old Testament also certifies... That Jonah was one of God's prophets. Second Kings chapter 14. If you look at the place. And we're talking here about verse 25. Second book of Kings chapter 14. Why look up this verse? Just to show you, not only can we say the gospel history supports the teaching of the book of Jonah and shows that what is detailed in the book of Jonah actually did come to pass. So the New Testament supports the authenticity of the book of Jonah and the Old Testament also. The Old Testament also uh, gives us this solemn guarantee of the divine origin of the book of Jonah and Jonah's ministry. Verse 25, 2 Kings 14, 25. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah the son of Amittai the prophet which was of Gath Hefer. So looking there at uh, what is said of Jonah, you can see when he lived. He lived in the days of Jeroboam II. We can also say, here is one of the things he prophesied. He prophesied that the Lord would restore the coast of Israel and the regions described to this king, ungodly as he is. The mercy of God would be extended to him. And you can see also the state of the nation uh, at that time because uh, Jeroboam and all that he did uh, he had uh, done that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. You have to go to verse 24 for that. He did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and made Israel to sin. So the state of the nation during the time of Jonah's ministry, it was exceedingly distressing. The nation had continued in its departure from God. Jonah lived in a day of apostasy and wretchedness. And the awful legacy of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
still making its presence felt upon the land. So Jonah then is told, Arise and go to Nineveh. You can see that here in our prophecy. Jonah 1 verse 2. Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. But alas, Jonah rose up all right. Verse 3. You see the same words. He rose up as if responding to the command God had given. He rose up only to do the opposite thing. How sad it is that Jonah, a prophet of God, should actually try to flee from God. <coughs> now the psalmist has said, I flee unto thee to hide me. And clearly the child of God can identify with that because in times of distress, when we have no one else to go to, we can run to the Lord, we can flee to the Lord for refuge. Hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages. I'm hiding in thee. But Jonah, instead of fleeing to the Lord, he's fleeing from the Lord. Anybody can come on a time when the circumstances are unhelpful. There may come a time when your spirit feels, when under the cloud of discouragement, you don't have the feeling of commitment and you can't give heart and soul to the Lord as earlier you had desired so clearly. And now you may be holding back on God. But it's the worst thing in the world if trying to opt out of the work of God you go in the wrong direction, fleeing from the Lord, running away from God, instead of running to the Lord. And we would argue tonight, look, if your circumstances are difficult, if your heart is sore, if you're under the cloud of discouragement, and we, we, we all can get there, well, let us run to the Lord, not run away from Him. Take Elijah. The prophet of fire, one of the greatest men ever to serve the Lord in the land of promise. And when Elijah was going to run away, at least he didn't run away to an ungodly society. He wasn't running away from God, but he ran to Mount Sinai. In the course of time, he got there. He ran to Sinai because he knew that was the mountain where God met with Moses. And he knew that after the recovery of the nation from the land of Egypt, the whole assembly of the tribes of Israel was gathered there at the foot of Mount Sinai and God spoke to men. And the earth trembled. So running to Sinai, I think I can see a man running to the Lord and not running away from God. Poor Jonah, he will go to Tarshish. Just you look at verse 3 of the chapter. Here is something to Gain your attention. Uh, three times over, the word Tarsus appears. Have you marked them? Have you noticed that? Why not just say the one time, Tarsus? Why repeat it three times? God speaketh once, yea, twice. Man perceiveth it not. I think we have to say, the Lord has put Tarsus into the Bible here 
to show that thoughts about Tarnish, Tarshish just filled the mind of Jonah. Tarshish was no place for a child of God to be. It's an ungodly place. Oh, it's a place of great wealth, of marketing activity. There are thousands of people who go in the course of the year. He has no business being there. What put it in his head anyway? You, you can't read the Hebrew Bible in verse 3 and come across the word Tarshish without noticing something. And this is quite a simple point. Every time the word Tarshish comes up in the verse 3, there's a little stop mark put on it. That is to say, to stop the reader. To have the reader proceeding through verse 3, just stop for a second. And would we do that? It's quite easy to do. And Jonah rose up to flee onto Tarshish. We stop. You think of that. He rose up. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. Stop there for a moment. And he wanted to go with them onto Tarshish. Stop. From the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is a place of excitement. <coughs> oh, there's money there. There's pleasure there. And the snares of the world are there. And for Jonah, it's the last place a man of God should think about. That's alarming. Because in any congregation there could be somebody, however unlikely, there could be somebody here tonight and you're toying around with things that God has no pleasure in. You may be working with something or other that is distasteful. Something that the Lord frowns upon. And he's saying, that thing may be filling your mind, but you have to stop there and think about it. I, I, I think I can guess why Jonah would be so enraptured with Tarshish. Although it's no place for him to be, the child of God should not be there. More than a hundred years before, remember, no TV, no press, nothing but to keep on telling the old stories over and over again. King Solomon had his ships bound for Tarshish, and even Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat may have gone there, and the reasoning would be very clear among these people. Now, if King Solomon, he's a child of God, and he has done this, and he's the son of David, and he has done it, so I may do it. Or Jehoshaphat, look at what the Bible says of him, and he had these ships built, built for the very purpose of going to Tarshish, that place of worldly pleasure. He wanted to get there too. And the reasoning is, well, if he did it, and he's a child of God, and he's a son of David, some lines down, if we take Jehoshaphat, some lines down the family connection, and he did it. Do you know, we get the same sort of reasoning today. That some child of God may engage to do the thing that's not desirable. It might even be the wrong thing. 
And they're going to justify it by saying, well, you know, naming the person might be a young person, might be an older person, so-and-so has done it. And, and he's a Christian, and he goes to the free church. That may be added in for further justification. I hope it can't be added in, but it could be. He goes to the free church. So the idea is, if, if, if he's doing it, then I can do it. Don't fall for that one. Who are you copying? Don't copy the person who's leaving a question mark over themselves for their conduct. Don't follow the wrong person. Follow the Lord fully. Don't get the wrong example to justify you taking the step and you may go further than the person you're discussing. Don't pattern yourself on somebody who might be a failing Christian, although you're not always in the best position to judge and it could be a dangerous thing for you to make a judgment based on very slim information. I tell you this tonight. He had the idea fixed in his head. And I've got to come to this. It says he rose up to flee onto Tarsus. And that was in his mind before he got to Joppa. And when he went down to Joppa, he found a ship going. The idea there is the ship was already loaded. People were on board. The crew were busying themselves uh, getting ready to begin the voyage. Any livestock, any cattle that were going were already herded onto the deck. They were ready now to pull the gangways up. You see, the ship was going. It was a last minute thing. And rushing down to the quayside, he had already the idea, I need to go to Tarsus. That's as far away from God as I can get. What a silly thing. And there's the striking thing. Nearly unbelievable. The ship in readiness. You can see the men working. She's just ready to slip away from the quayside. And where are you bound for, sir? Tarsus. Get on board quick. I think the devil always hurries people. It's a matter of ensnaring them in their sins. And poor Jonah gets on board right away. And you can see he's on the downhill road. Verse 3 says he went down to Joppa. When he came to the ship, verse 3 says he went down into it. In verse 5, Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship. In chapter 2, verse 6, I went down to the bottom of the mountains. There are people who have left the free church. Just as they have left other churches. And they've gone away without conviction. Without the Lord saying, do this. And we can't even begin to consider the reasons why they might have departed we haven't lost too many but here and there we have lost some did they pray about it did they have God's leading did the Lord take them out of it I don't think so because very often and people could mark it ever so plainly it was a downhill yes. procedure giving up on the old standards backing off one point after another and changing their attitude and even their outlook and their testimony. 
just going down and down and down. I can see it here. You consider the thing, Jonah is the loser. And look at the things he has lost. He has lost his money. That would be always hard for a Jew, wouldn't it? He paid the fare thereof. There's a price to be paid for departing from God. And then he lost the blessing because he became a trouble on board. What a trouble he is to the men on board this vessel. He says, it's for my sake, verse 12, it's for my sake this terrible storm has come upon you. And they threw a lot of the cargo overboard and that was worth a lot of money. So these men are put to it. Looking at the man there responsible for the whole thing. Instead of being a blessing. He's like a curse to them. Ever since he came on board. That's why they go through all the questions. Who are you? What's your occupation? What's the explanation for this? It cost them money. It cost them the blessing of God. And he lost the presence of God. Moreover. Because you can see. And this startles me. Twice over in verse 3, he went to flee from the presence of the Lord. And again he explained in verse 10 that he, he fled from the presence of the Lord. And that word presence is sometimes translated face. Face, from the face of the Lord. The loveliest thing for a Christian is to be able to come face to face with the Lord. And the prayer of the Christian ever so often has been, Lord, let us tonight see the face of Christ. You're not looking for an image, but you're saying spiritually, let us see thy face. Let us see the beauty of Christ in the scriptures. We're looking to see Jesus here. The poor Jonah is hiding himself. That's what Cain did. He went out from the presence of the Lord. That's what Judas did that awful night before they got to Gethsemane. He went out from the presence of the Lord and it was night. That's what the devil did in Job chapter 1. He went out from the <coughs> presence of the Lord. And Jonah, what are you playing at? That you're doing the very same thing. And it will cost him his ministry. There'd be no preaching in Tarshish. That's for sure. It will cost him his life. Because all those crewmen standing at the side of the vessel when they have tossed him over the side, they're looking there at him being swallowed up by that awful monster of the deep and they're thinking, he's gone. He's dead. We come to that tomorrow night, you see. He's gone. And they're saying among themselves, that man's folly has not only taken him down, downhill, down and down and down and down. And it has cost him everything. It has cost him his life. What a sad mistake to run away from God in disobedience. I have it down here concerning uh, Jonah, and that he's the disobedient servant. He's the unwilling missionary. He's the runaway prophet. When he had gone down into the vessel, he wanted to be anonymous. That's why he went down into the depths of
of the vessel. But when they brought out the procedure of the lot, there he is, identified. And all his sins are made clear, for he has to confess in the presence of the men who stand terrified in that deck. He has to confess his sin. And it's better, men and women, any time we slip into wrongdoing, it's better to face up to it ourselves. Rather to be in a set of circumstances like Jonah and find ourselves cut to the heart, embarrassed, found out, and crying out after all, we're guilty. It's for my sake, he says in verse 12, that the tempest has come upon you. What a sad thing. And yet, before we finish, we can say, Jonah may be a very unlikely type of Christ. Even should it be by contrast, we can see Christ here in the scriptures. It would be a separate subject in itself. We think of the one who gave his life for us. He's not the unwilling servant. He's not the disobedient servant of the Lord, but he came willingly to take our place and die in our guilty room instead. And in a way, Jonah gave his life for all on board that vessel. If Jonah had not been identified and if he had not confessed and if he had not said, throw me over the side, the whole ship would have gone down. Do you see there how at the last line of verse 4 it says the ship is like to be broken. And there's this vessel, sea-going vessel it may be, but the timbers are creaking and groaning and sighing that the ship is ready to fall apart and it will fall apart. Unless something is speedily done. And Jonah says, take me. And they're crying out these men. Oh Lord, we don't want to shed the innocent blood. There was a cry in Israel when our Lord was crucified. Let his blood be upon us. Upon our children. It was the innocent blood. Judas realized that. And how dreadful to think that there are people in Israel tonight who have inherited that awful judgment that the innocent blood is upon them, upon their children. Whereas the child of God can say, you see there the innocent blood. There is that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. The innocent blood was shed for me. It comes out in a far better way. The three days and the three nights. I dare say if the Lord hadn't spoken about the three days and three nights, and if some preacher had ever dared to say, there's a type of Christ here, his colleagues in the ministry would have said, that's very far-fetched. But it's not a mistake. For our Saviour has made the identification. <coughs> and he has brought us to this passage tonight and yes we come see the mistakes and the sins in Jonah's life but we can also see Christ there too yes. and say thank God for the innocent blood the blood shed for me the life that was given for me you can come through the storm because with Christ in the vessel you can smile at the storm
Tomorrow night is the prayer. It's most absorbing. I think it's as important as chapter 2. It's as important as any chapter in the book. Try and be here tomorrow night. If you come, come for prayer. I intend to be here for prayer, the Lord willing. So if you come, do join us around the throne of grace. Mr. McLaughlin is going to... Well, I thought maybe you had a hymn. No, no, there. No. Well, we're going to close in prayer then. <coughs> See, we've taken time just to show how important in Scripture the book of Jonah is, that it has the stamp of God on it, because living in an age of scepticism as we do, so many are pouring scorn in other parts of the Bible, never mind the book of Jonah. And it's so important for the child of God to be razor sharp (laughs) in his approach to Scripture and what he knows and what he stands for. And I wouldn't want you, nor would anybody in the free church, want to be in the dark about the origin of these books of the Bible or where Jesus Christ and the apostles stood in regard to people like Jonah, a man sent from God. You and I will meet him in heaven. He's not perfect. We can see that. But then if you and I look in the mirror, we have to say we're not perfect either. I'm glad the Lord has patience. Amen. What a wonderful patience the Lord has had with us. Yes. bow in prayer. Lord, we owe everything to thee. We stand here saying we're debtors to mercy alone. There's nothing else, Lord, for us to say. We can't look in the mirror and say, well done. We can't commend ourselves. But there's something here in Jonah. We may not have gone on board the ship. We may not have given in to the desire for getting to Tarshish. We may not have got that far. We may not have got in among them. Those who were ungodly aboard that vessel. Lord, we... We've still fallen short betimes. And we ask that we might learn of thee in order to go on with God. Let's press on toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Speak to hearts tonight. Grant, Lord, if there's one here without a Savior, that tonight they'll come to the the Savior and to the cross. And for believers, every child of God, lead them on with thyself. In Jesus' dear name. Amen. Amen.